0: hey good morning Austin Oaks Church Um, thank you so much for your grace your patience Uh, our technical difficulties this morning are a result of very good news Um, Josh Baracolo who's normally our AV media or our sound guy who knows all the technology everything that's kind of going on here well his wife had their baby this morning at 8 30 a.m and so let's welcome penelope lynn into this world and and if you want just like you know send out a message to josh or samantha let them know you are praying for them you're thinking of them so our technical difficulties this morning listen it's good news it is good news because there's another broccolo in this world and i'm telling you this okay now i'm very um, let's just say I'm, I'm very particular. I think my kids are the cutest kids, but I'm also very, um, I would say the Broccolo kids are pretty close to some of the cutest kids. And so I can't wait to meet Penelope Lane. So way to go, Josh and Samantha. We love you. Okay, so this morning we're going to be diving into Ephesians chapter 2. So uh, let's just go right into it, okay? So if you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. A little bit in the New Testament, go to the right after the Gospels. Um, or you can open up on your smartphone. Last week, uh, the design was to go through Ephesians chapter two, verses one through ten. Uh, but we spent the majority of our time just in the three verses because it's important for us to understand our, our our condition, to understand why there's evil in this world, to understand our human nature, our lot in life apart from Jesus. It is so important for us to understand. Okay, so um, I want to start out. This morning with a little bit of an illustration, if if you would. Baseball is... And still, it was and still is my favorite sport to play. I love everything about the game. I love the camaraderie. I love the uniforms. I'm a high sock guy, not a big pants all the way down to the ankle guy. There's, there's not a whole lot about baseball that I don't like. I love, even as a dad watching my son play in tournaments, just re- reminiscing on the times when I got to go play in tournaments and all that kind of stuff. I, I love everything about baseball. Now, I, I will say this, right? Now, I don't really enjoy watching let's say, the MLB a whole lot until somewhere around August, because there's just, quite frankly, there's just too many games, okay? So it's like, I'll I'll throw that to some people. Now, like my wife, she'll be like, I I don't understand baseball. It's a slow-moving sport. It's kind of boring. I was like, yeah, it can be a little bit boring to watch. Now, college baseball, watching college baseball is something else. Nonetheless, the reason why I bring this up is because in the world of baseball, it is a world of statistics of abbreviations there's so much jargon within baseball and i'm going to make a confession to you that is a little bit embarrassing i knew what the majority of all of the stats meant I, i i knew what the abbreviations and the jargon was like for the most part okay now i was a pitcher and when i played i loved getting my stats now some of you know exactly what i'm talking about some of you are like i have no idea what that means but there was one category in, for pitchers that troubled me. In, in other words, like I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how it worked or how one got that stat. And it was the save. Okay, I never understood how one got the save. I just made the assumption that if you come in as a relief pitcher in the 8th or ninth inning, what have you, and your team has the lead, and you just pitch out the side, in other words, you get the three outs and you don't blow the lead, you win the game that should give you the save right that's what i thought and there would be a lot of times when i was pitching i would come in as a relief pitcher to get the save and i would do it we would shut down the team we would hold the, the you know the team back we would win but i didn't get the statistic and i never understood it i never understood it. i just simply thought it was you saved the game right you came in you did what you needed to do so It was confusing and quite honestly frustrating. So in order to get the save, there are certain conditions and requirements that are needed in order to do that. So I want to share with you three of the conditions, and one of them can apply, okay? You enter the game with a lead of no more than three runs and pitch at least one inning, okay? You enter the game with the tying run on deck or the tying run is at, on, at the plate or the tying run is on the bases and you don't blow the lead, you would get the save. Or you pitch at least three innings. You pitch to seventh, eighth, and ninth inning and you get the save. Now, if you come in in a ninth inning and you're up by four or five runs and you hold that lead, you don't get the save. But if it was three runs, you get the save. Extremely confusing and frustrating, especially when I was trying to pad my stats. Now, the reason why I I share that with you is because I've been pastoring for 17 years. And I know that people are still oftentimes confused about how to get saved. What does it mean to be saved? Right? What are the conditions? What does it even mean? Like, what are the, the, what does it even do for me? All of these things. There are some people who think that you just have to be good enough and then somehow figure out if you've done more good than bad and hope for the best. A lot of times if you just ask people who aren't connected to the church, like, hey, will you be going to heaven? And they'll probably say yes. And then if you were to ask another question, you're like, well, how do you know? More often than not, they will say, well, I, I probably did more good than not, but I don't know, I hope so like that's 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 shaky at best and that's that's full of anxiety like for me right some think that they need to do certain religious acts to be saved right you got to be baptized you got to do communion for catholics the eucharist confirmation or even just simple disciplines like you got to go to church you got to give or you even need to be part of a certain denomination some think that they need to prove or show God that they are worthy of His love. So God, look, I am finally lovable. I finally got myself put together. So now you could save me. Other people simply think that they're beyond hope. Like I've sinned so much. that There's absolutely no way God could even save me. Some think you can be saved and then not be saved. Like you can lose your salvation, right? Maybe some people like you sinned or you walked away from the faith and you wonder, you wonder, is my salvation secure? Some people think there is no need to be saved because after all, we're basically okay. We're good. Saved. Is it just a ticket to heaven? Right? Is it just fire insurance? What difference does it make in the here and now? What are we saved from and what are we saved for? We need to understand this. Right? we got to understand that f- being saved, it's such a churchy word, right? And it's a hard word, but there's no other word for it because of our natural condition. We were dead. We were helpless. There was nothing that we can do. The only way for us to have life is if God came and saved us. It is the best word we have. But we got to understand that salvation is far more than just forgiveness of sins. It's far more than just dealing with our guilt and shame. Okay? Now, this morning, I'm not going to unpack the first three verses again. And if you didn't watch the sermon last Sunday, I want to encourage you to do that. Because we spent a considerable amount of time unpacking what verses 1, 2, and 3 mean. And, and, and why that's important. We talked about it's like you got to know the symptoms. you you got to know just how bad the circumstance is in order to treasure grace, in order to treasure what Jesus did. We have to understand that, okay? But as a quick flyover, let's look at this real quick, okay? I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, these three verses confront two general thoughts that is prevalent in our culture, in our world today. And if you were to ask people why is there evil more often than not, here's, they would talk about these things. They would just simply say, well, it's not me, it's them. I'm basically good. The problem isn't my group, it isn't me, it's other people. If other people would get their stuff together, we wouldn't have this big problem, right? The other one is, is very much of a um, a humanistic thinking, that we're basically good. We're good people that we just get lost on occasions and we lose our way, but we're inherently good we got to understand something, okay? The problem is that humanity, the majority of humanity, thinks that we are inherently good. But the reality is, history doesn't support that. Now, I'm not saying that we can't do good things. Of course we can, because God's mercy and His favor is still prevalent, but also we're created in the image of God. But what we are saying is that history, yes, even your own history shows that we are not inherently good but that we are inherently selfish which is a result of sin paul says in romans chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is death you sin your payment is death that's why paul says in 2 1 you were dead all people all people Not just them. It's you. It's me. Apart from Jesus, we are dead in our sin and our trespasses, and we are enslaved, we are oppressed, we are captive to the world. We are sons and daughters of disobedience. In other words, we follow Satan and the and uh, the powers and principalities of the air. We're enslaved to the lusts. And the passions of the flesh that control our body and our mind, we're spiritually dead. Yes, we're physically alive. And yes, we're emotionally alive. Yes. But the reality, the most important thing in this life is our soul, is our spiritual condition. And we are dead. We are separated from Christ. Separated from God because of our sin. So can we agree on this? Dead people can't do anything. Like, let's just settle that fact, okay? Dead people can't do anything. That's important. So if we are dead in our sins, and we are alienated, and we are children of wrath, okay? We can't do anything. The only way for us to be saved or for us to come alive is for someone or something outside of us. And that's what the cross and the empty tomb does, we said this last week that you're not drowning in a sea of sin you're not in the process of drowning and jesus comes on a boat and throws off throws you a life raft so that you can grab hold of it and get rescued that is a bad analogy because the right analogy scripturally speaking is that you're dead in that sea of sin you're face down you already drowned in that sea and jesus had to come and pull your lifeless body out of the water, into the boat, and breathe his life into you. That's the beauty of the gospel. So let's look at this now. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, 5, and 6. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm going to make the argument that the most, two, most important two words in this letter, probably I would even make again another case to say the most important two words in all of the Bible are the first two words there in verse 4, but God. These two words beautifully beautifully paint this picture of contrast. We were helpless, but not hopeless because, but God, right? We were dead, but God. it's, It's all about him, right? Dead people can't do anything. We were slaves in a position of dishonor. We were powerless, unable to do anything about our present circumstance. Nothing we could do to ever make our spirits come alive. There's nothing we could ever do. There's no amount of good that could ever pay off the debt that we have accumulated because of our sin. But God, He's the one. He's the one who moved towards you in your rebellion and in your rejection of Him. He's the one. When you were dead, He moved towards you. He knew you were under his wrath, and so his love moved him to save you, to redeem you. He sent his son Jesus, his only son, who knew no sin. He was perfect, innocent, blameless, went to the cross, and on that cross he became our sin, died a sinner's death. He was treated by God like a son of disobedience, a follower of Satan, a child of wrath. Said the same thing last week. He bore our sin in our place. He didn't just merely die for us. He died instead of us. And his death satisfied the wrath of God. These two words is the pivot point for the one who believes. You were dead. You were captive. Enslaved. Nothing you could do. But God, right here, Right here, what we are by nature is going to be completely confronted by what we will be by grace. Our human condition. This is our human condition meeting God's divine compassion. But God, he's rich in mercy. Don't just fly through these words. Like, sit on this. Let it just steep a bit in your heart. He's rich in mercy. It's a never-ending supply of mercy. His mercies are new every morning. He has an infinite abundance of mercy forever. He doesn't want any to perish. Because of his rich mercy. If you ever wonder what God's posture is towards you, you can guarantee it. it is a posture of mercy. Guaranteed. Now is the time of salvation. And that's why Scripture says that, is because now He doesn't want any to perish. He's extending mercy to you. Now is the time to receive it, to embrace it, to live in it, and to share in it. Yes, you were under His wrath, and some still are under His wrath. But God made a way. That's mercy. But God Because of the great love with which he loved us. He's rich in mercy, but also because of the love, the great love with which. I read that and I'm just like, man, Paul, he doesn't even have the right words. And In fact, there are no words in our vocabulary that can accurately uh, quantify God's mercy and love. He doesn't know what to say. Because of the great love with which he loved us, it is far surpassing anything we could ever imagine. So here's what I want to do. Just like how sometimes it can be confusing to try to figure out what makes us save in baseball, we need to ask this question. What did God actually do? What did he do here? When he moved towards us, when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, and when Jesus conquered the tomb and death and the grave three days later, and then 40 days after that ascended to the right hand of the Father, seated there interceding here, like what did god actually do he saved us he saved us but what does that mean what did he save us from he saved us from our human condition from our natural state from our spiritual death from our masters and our oppressors It's by grace you've been saved. There's no other way in order to be saved. It is the grace of God that he extended to you. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unconditional. The word saved is written in in the perfect, it's a perfect participle, which means being saved by, (coughs) by grace, which is now also has these abiding consequences or results of God's saving action in the past. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but here's what I want to do with this. What are those results of what God has done and achieved for us in the past? Three things specifically I want to point out. Let's look at this, verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be saved? He made us alive together with Christ. That's the first thing. It is far more than fire insurance. It's far more than a ticket to heaven. It's far more than just a ploy to try to get people to be morally better. No, 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 no. He he made us alive together with Jesus. Think of the resurrection. You were dead. He made you alive. He breathed his breath into you. He resuscitated you. And this is intimately connected because of the resurrection. We saw in chapter 1 that God demonstrated his power to the world, to the powers and principalities in the air by raising Jesus from the dead. Now he demonstrates that same power by raising you and I from the dead. Literally, we have awoken, we are resurrected. We are new creations in Christ. And this is not just a pithy religious statement. This isn't just semantics. It makes me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 4.20. It says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's not just words. But it's a matter of power. Now I remember when I was dead in my sin. I remember like... Like, on the the outside, nobody really knew that I was struggling with so much shame and guilt and depression and all this kind of stuff. Like, I I mean, there was so much in my life that was good, but I was also extremely lost. There was so many things I was trying to find meaning, peace, happiness, joy, and I got myself involved in drugs and drinking and relationships I mean, like, I wanted to be good. I wanted to change certain behaviors, but the more I tried, the worse it seemed to God. And it just also, it would just, like, produce and breed this hopelessness. It reminds me of, like, what Paul would even say in Romans chapter 7. It's like, the good I want to do, well, that's not even the thing that I do. In fact, I do the very opposite. I, I do the thing I don't want to do. And, and, and it's like he, he summarizes going, what a wretched man I am. Like, I remember trying so hard to get right. Trying so hard to prove to those around me that I'm worthy of their love. Trying so hard. And all the while on the inside, I was so lost and confused. But nobody on the outside could know that. Many nights lying in bed after a night of drinking or whatever it is. I'm never going to do that again. Why did I do that? I'm not happy with myself over and over and over. And I remember, I remember it was the beginning of my sophomore year in college. And it just got so bad. I literally tried for like the summer before that semester started. in. And it was 2000. Yeah, it was 2000. I tried so hard to get it all together. And I walked into... The university in August, getting ready to play ball, absolutely depressed, because I wasn't able to change. I wasn't able to do it. I felt like a failure. felt hopeless. Depression mounted. Heavy. And I wanted to end it all. I literally was face down in the sea of sin, dead. My life proved it. But God pulled me out. And I remember it. He started to hunt me. He he was the hound of heaven in my life, coming after me. And I remember hearing about Jesus, and hearing about the cross, and hearing about the empty tomb, what the death of Christ meant, and how he took my sin, my shame, my guilt, and he paid for it. How that appeased God's wrath. But not only that. Because he conquered death in the grave, I now can have a new life. And I remember receiving the gift of life, his grace. I remember it in how radically transformed my life was. I knew I was a new creation. The people around me knew I was a new creation. This isn't just a ticket to heaven, folks. This isn't just semantics. We're dead in our sin, and only Jesus can breathe life into us. He's the one who made us alive together with Him. But the second thing we see that He did when He saved us is that He raised us up with Him. He raised us up with Jesus. What does that mean? When Jesus ascended, God exalted Him. And it was made known, it was clear that Jesus now rules over all and that all things are placed under His feet. Death can't hold Him. Evil can't touch Him. He's ascended on high. Now, for us, when God saved us by grace, when he died, when he died for us and he conquered death, and when he raised us up with Jesus, that means that we too now have this new victory over evil, with evil being placed under our feet where death can no longer touch us, where Satan no longer can touch us, and we are now completely free from the bondage of death and evil. Like, that's what it means when he raised us up. We are up there right now with Him. But not only that, He made us alive. He raised us up with Jesus. But look at this next part, okay? And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He made us sit with Him in the heavenly places in Jesus. Now, this is a picture of thrones, friends. We are seated with Him right now. In the heavenlies. I don't fully understand that, but scripture talks about it, so it's absolutely true. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's at the seat of honor around God's throne. And Paul is telling us that to be saved means to be seated with Jesus at the place of honor around God's throne. In other words, you and I, we couldn't be in a higher place in heaven or any closer to God because of where we're seated with Jesus. What did God do? He saved us. Okay? That's a new life. Literally, a new life, new creation. A new victory, complete victory, freedom with a new trajectory. What did God do? He did way more than just forgive us our sins. He did way more than just deal with the guilt and shame. He made you alive raised you up in victory and power and seated you in the place of honor with Jesus. We were enslaved, but now we have been enthroned. But God, that's what a save is according to the gospel. It's just like a save according to the baseball dictionary, there are certain conditions That allows one to pick up the save. It's the same thing. There are certain conditions in order to be saved. First, I'm going to suggest this. You need to recognize your condition. You need to recognize your nature, that you're dead. Otherwise, you're not going to receive this grace. You're not going to see any need for it. You're going to think you're good enough, that you can handle this, that you can do it yourself, that you really aren't that bad, that you're inherently good. You have to recognize your nature, your human condition. Hopeless. Helpless all by yourself. But let's look at now verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The first condition in order to be saved, recognize that you're dead. Second, embrace and receive the basis of salvation, grace. It's a gift. You don't do it yourself. God does it for you. That is such good news. Listen, it has nothing to do with your good behavior. Grace means it had nothing to do with you whatsoever. Like whatsoever. He didn't like save you because all of a sudden you're more lovely than another person. Or that you have like something more going for you than another person? Absolutely not. No amount of good deeds could ever convince God to move towards you. There's nothing good about you. It's grace. It's a gift from God. You don't earn gifts. If you earned a gift, it wouldn't be a gift. It'd be a wage. They are freely given. Grace is freely given. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's not because you are less bad or better than them. It's not even a reward for showing faith, for being a good Christian. It's all from God. He restores you. He drew you. And He even gave you the ability to believe. So, condition one, recognize your condition. You're dead. Two, Embrace and receive the basis of salvation. It's by grace. You don't contribute to it. And praise God for that. Third, we have to exercise and lay hold of His grace. And that's why I'm going to say the tool of salvation is faith. And faith is even a gift from God. Faith isn't a religious feeling. It's not conjuring up of magic. It's not even trying to become more Christian. Faith Faith is simply the humble trust with which we receive it for ourselves. It's laying hold of the hand of Jesus. Faith grabs hold of that. It's confidence, it's trust. We're active to believe that Jesus has accomplished all that he said he did. And you place and rest your hope and your life on that. That's faith. You're grabbing hold of it It's by grace through faith you've been saved. You're dead. It's his grace freely extended, given to you, and you grab hold of it by faith. This is relational. Faith is reliance on a reliable God. It's not some blind faith where we don't know certain things about God. It's we know God is reliable, and so we are relying on Him. Faith. God, by His grace, He promises and commits Himself to us. We, in turn, then trust those promises and live in light of them. God shows Himself faithful, and we respond in faithfulness. Now, I want you to hear this. Please, hear this carefully. To say you have faith has nothing to do with you. To say you have faith in God, that you have faith in Jesus, it says nothing about you. If you say you have faith, you're saying that God is worthy to be trusted on and counted on. You are saved by grace through faith. Why did God do this? And this is where I want to end. Because this is important for us to understand. What did God do? He saved us. He raised us from, de- from death to life. He, he, he exalted us. We ascended up there with Him, and now we're seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. But why did He do this? Why? He didn't have to. He would have been fully just and fully right to leave us in our sin. In our death. What was his motivation for doing it? What prompted God to act on our behalf? It's his mercy. It's his love. But let's look at verse 7 for a moment. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He wanted to demonstrate the immeasurable riches you can't fathom it you can't count it he wanted to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace in raising and exalting jesus he demonstrated his immeasurable greatness of his power but in raising and exalting us he's displaying the immeasurable riches of his grace now and forever one one way to think about this okay, is think about trophies for a moment, okay? Now, I was totally the kid that loved to accumulate trophies, and yes, most of them were baseball, because we're talking about baseball, all kinds of stuff. But, like, if you even go to, let's say, UT, right, and you go to one of the buildings, I don't know the name of the building, but you go there, and also they're going to display their trophies. They want to show off what they did, right? Now, like, I won't say his name, but there's a, there's, there is an elder in, in, our, in our church, a present elder who lives out and, you know, has a house out um, past Dripping and Ranch. And if you were to walk in that house, this house is a trophy room. And I don't understand it. I don't understand why people would hang up dead heads. I, I don't get it. Like, let's, let's mount deer heads and all that kind of stuff. I'm a, I'm a northern boy. I don't know. I don't get it. But it's, we like to show off our trophies. We want people to see it. We want to remember it, okay? So think about it this way, okay? You see, what if when you think about like someone's wall and all of the trophies, you know, that they got from hunting or sports and schools and high school and universities, like what if when the church is God's trophy room? right? Like in the coming ages, he wants to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, this means like now, in the era, the world system, and also in the future, like it's, he wants to show off his grace through us. He wants to show off these immeasurable riches through the church, Like, when people look in the church, when they look at the church, they should see God's riches of His grace and kindness Through Jesus, they shouldn't see a bunch of well-put-together people who are all this way and all that way, and they're all, you know, uppity. No, no, no. It, It should be a picture of people who've received life because of His grace. And these people within the church are eager and excited and ready to share and extend mercy and grace to other people. He wanted to demonstrate this. He loves us so much that there was nothing that he wouldn't have done to save us. It's by grace so that no one can boast. Dead people can't do anything. The only thing that a dead person can do is rot. But God next week we're going to pick up in verse 10 and launch ourselves into the next section here of ephesians chapter 2 but here's where i want to end some of you have never understood what being saved is today is the day of salvation he's accomplished it for you by his grace If you want to move from death to life, recognize that He already did it. If you want to be raised with Jesus and seated with Jesus and have power over sin and victory and peace that surpasses all understanding, receive it through faith. At some point this morning or whenever you watch this, it is as simple as just praying a prayer, something along these lines like, Lord... Jesus, I thank you that you died for me on that cross. And I don't fully understand it, but I know that on that cross, you died my death. You paid for my sin, my guilt, and my shame there. And I don't fully understand it, but when you rose from the dead, that means I can have new life. And if you're ready for that, I want to encourage you to pray that prayer this morning, text us, let us know if you're receiving Jesus or not. We would love to come alongside you and resource you and pray for you, encourage you. We don't want you to be isolated in this. We want to celebrate this. There's others of you, and it's the same thing we said last Sunday, that maybe this is the time for you just to pray and go, Lord, renew unto me the joy of my salvation to understand where you were and what God has done for you. This salvation should never get old. It should always be a source of joy and rejoicing and hope and thankfulness. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and others of you. I can't think of a better time than right now than to praise God for his grace. And his immeasurable kindness. He loves you. That's why he did this. You were hopeless. You were helpless. But God. With him, nothing's fatal. Nothing's final. There's always a way because of Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? lord we thank you for your word we thank you that it always speaks right to the heart it always speaks right to the soul it convicts and encourages it builds up and it tears down thank you for that so holy spirit we pray and ask that you would do your work that you would show areas in people's lives right now that word maybe they need to confess a sin maybe for our brother or sister out there who has never fully understood what it means to be saved, that this would be the morning, Lord, and that you would make it clear to them that this is their time to receive this grace by faith. And Lord, I pray for us too as a church that we would never lose the joy of our salvation, that we would never abandon our first love, and that not only would we be kind of your trophies of grace, but Lord, we would be people, quick, to share grace and mercy to others because you, were, you did that to us. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you and bless you. In Christ's name, amen. Blessings, church.